Thank you, Danny. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 3. I want to speak to you this morning on Sardis, a mega church with a mega problem. Sardis, a mega church with a mega problem. Stand, if you would, please, if you found Revelation chapter 3, and I'll begin reading with verse 1. We're in the fifth letter of the seven letters to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you be seated, please? <clears throat> it has been my privilege to serve two churches that would be called by our definition of churches, mega churches, large, progressive, urban churches on the cutting edge with aggressive programming and aggressive ministry and multiple staffs and multi-million dollar budgets and uh, nationwide ministries, all those kind of things. And I have thought often about my experiences in those situations because sometimes when you're young in the ministry, you think, boy, if I could just get there, boy, that would be glory. It would be like Paul's trip to the third heaven. And you find out after you've been there a while, it's like somebody else's trip to the third level of hell. You, you just find out that sometimes all that glitters is not gold. In fact, what they tell you is greener grass is sometimes nothing more than astroturf. Uh, Mega churches are not without their problems. And there are tendencies that a church can get into once it reaches a certain size and once it, once it reaches a certain level that it feels like it has to perpetuate and shift over into manipulating to keep things happening. When that happens, we pervert the gospel and we change the simplicity of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we think we've got to maintain a level or keep an image and an appearance about who we are and what we are and sometimes what we put on the front. It's kind of like everything's in the show window, but there's nothing in stock. You go into the store and you say, I'd like that coat that's in the store window. So sorry, we don't carry that coat. The only one we got since in the window. That's it. That's the only one we've got. And sometimes churches are like that. You drive by and you see that they've got their services announced and they've got a board that tells you what time you come there and you get their bulletin and they've got all these activities going on and you come to find out that everything they've got is in the show window. A lot of mega churches are Sunday morning churches. They'll have four and 5,000 people on Sunday morning and 800 on Sunday night and it looks like a covey of quail that have been starving to death on Wednesday night. 
They're, guilt, they're built around one hour, one worship service, and there's not much else going on. Although there's a lot of activity, the church is really not moving and vibrant and growing as you would think a church ought to be. Jesus is writing to a megachurch in Asia Minor. It's the church of Sardis. And he identifies himself as the correspondent. And he says in verse 1, He who has the seven spirits of God. The reference is to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, there are the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit that will rest on Messiah when he comes. Jesus says, I am the one who has the seven, which is the number of completeness. I am the one that has the fullness, the completeness, all the characteristics of the Spirit rest on me. I am the one that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He has the seven stars. Now, if you want to know who the seven stars are, you turn over to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The angels of the seven churches. You remember that that word angel is translated messenger or elder or pastor of the church. Now I have met some pastors who thought they were stars. You ever met one? It's a disgusting thing quite honestly. It's a far cry from what the Bible says we're supposed to be as servants of the king. You know, anytime anybody thinks he's a star, he's not one. Now, you just mark it down. If somebody ever thinks that they're a star in God's kingdom, they're not one. Because God's stars are servants. They are men and women who serve humbly and who understand their position under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I control the seven stars, the seven pastors. And he's writing to this church in the city of Sardis. The city was positioned on a hill about 1,000 or 1,500 feet above a river basin. It was once the crown jewel, the glory of the Lydian kingdom. There in Sardis, they had first produced metal coins. They also produced and mass-marketed dyed wool. This was a great city. It had a great heritage. They had an ancient prestige. But their present attainment was not up to the level that they had once been. It's like driving through a place and they always tell you what used to be in that building and what business used to thrive there, but now there's nothing there. A lot of talk about what used to be. Sardis was one of those cities. In fact, Sardis was an incomparable city to any other city of its kind. I mean, just nothing was like it. It was supposed to be unconquerable. That is, if there was only one interest that was easily defended into the city of Sardis, and yet in 549 and in 241 B.C., Sardis was easily overrun by the enemy. The people were lazy and lackadaisical. They got to be haughty and prideful about their position. They felt like nothing could take them over, and so they were careless, and because they were careless, they were conquered. One historian has said this, No city in the whole province of Asia had a more splendid history than Sardis, and no city showed such a melancholy contrast between the past splendor and the present decay as Sardis. They had a great reputation. But there wasn't much reality in them. Notice, if you would, in verse 2. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. He says two little words. He says, wake up. He is speaking to the church. It was the same word that could have been said to the city. 
The city had gotten lethargic and careless, and they needed to wake up or else they would be conquered. The same thing he says to the church. You've taken on the characteristics of the city. And you need to wake up. You need to revive yourself. You need to get with it because you're about to be overtaken. So you need to wake up. He's writing to a city and to a church that should have been on top, but it wasn't. Now, he writes to this church, and it's very interesting, for he says in verse 1, I know your deeds. <clears throat> you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, folks, this church had it all. They had something going at the church every night of the week. I mean, the buildings were open. There were people there. They had committee meetings, and if they couldn't find a committee that was meeting, they'd call a meeting just to have meetings. They were meeting and they were organizing and they were planning and they were praying and they would come together and they would sing and worship and they would observe the ordinances and they would have functioning groups. These folks were movers and shakers. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but Sardis was one of the top ten fastest growing churches in Asia Minor. They were really with it. Everything about them looked so good on the surface. He said, I know your deeds. Jesus said, boy, I looked around and you folks are moving. You got a lot of programs, you got a lot of plans, you got a lot of things going on. But he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, I've found that to be true in my experience in the ministry. You can look at a lot of churches and they look busy. I get over a hundred church mailouts a week. That's what I read instead of the comic pages, because they're funny. Because I know some of these churches. And you read the church mail out, and you would think they're evangelistic. You would think that they are moving and shaking for the kingdom of God. You would think that they had a commitment to this word. And then you look at their baptism record, and they hadn't baptized anybody in the last three years. And yet every week it's got something about our concern for the lost. Now it looks active. There's a busy schedule. There's a calendar of activities. And if you were to go and ask for information on the church, you can get it. I mean, they've got brochures and programs and pictures of the pastor and all these kind of things, and they've got people who can tell you about how wonderful things are. That's man's evaluation. God looks at this church, and he looks at Sardis, and he says, you look real busy, but you're dead. Now, I don't know how a corpse can look busy, but this one did. This corpse of a church... Jesus looked at it and said, I've evaluated it. I've looked at your deeds. I've looked at your actions. I've looked at your ministries. I've looked at your programs, and you're dead. You are dead and don't know it. It was a word of finality that this church had reached a point where they were full of fluff and hype and going on and pumping up and pushing up, but it was over. They had developed a mentality of a universalistic mush God where God just kind of loved everybody and it was a gospel that was preached in this church that wouldn't offend anybody. I got a feeling, this is my opinion, that this church may have been built out of all glass somewhere in California. A lot of hype. A lot of spirituality cloaked in subtle humanism. A lot of almost saying what the gospel is, but not really saying it. And people love to come and have their ears tickled. 
They love to have their itch scratched. They love to come and not be confronted with the demands of Jesus Christ. This church was doing everything. They were a well-oiled machine. I mean, the money was coming in. The people were coming down the aisle. They had it all, but Jesus looked at them and said, You folks are dead. You're just dead. And then he comes to the condemnation. Now, there's not much of a commendation. In fact, he says, All you have is a few. That's his commendation. That word few is oligos in the Greek, and it, and it means you have a remnant, just a small segment, just a remnant. God always has a remnant in a church, folks, no matter how dead it is. God always has a remnant. And if the remnant can catch on fire and become consumed with the things of God, that they can usually light up a crowd. But God had a small, and he said, strengthen those things that, are, that remain. That was his commendation. He said, there's some things there. You just need to work at strengthening them. You need to breathe some life into them. But he didn't have much of a commendation. In fact, you've really got to look hard to find his good words about this church. He didn't say many. He spends all his time talking about what's wrong with it. Now, one thing about the Lord Jesus, I, I love what Dr. Havner said. He said, you know, I wish you'd, somebody came to me and said, I wish you'd quit talking about hell and, and all the things, that, you know, the negative things. He said, I wish you'd tell us something that Jesus said. He said, Jesus said, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs and you are of your father, the devil. See, we like to paint Jesus in our culture as this meek, little, mamby-pamby, wimpish man that walked around saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Friends, I want to tell you something. Jesus was harder than anybody that's ever lived on the face of this earth. He said, you follow me, you put your hand to the plow and you don't come back. He said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to love me more than anybody else. Jesus talked about the motives and the commitment of a man's heart. When you followed Christ, you followed him with your whole life, not just one day a week. And so he comes to this church and he gives them a condemnation. He says, I have not found your deeds completed. He said, you have a name. That Greek word, you have a name, is you have a reputation. You have uh, an attribute of something. Your name is that you've got something going on, that you're the church of what's happening now. But nothing's going on. You are dead. Necros is the Greek word, inoperative. You're absolutely inoperative. You are active, but you're inoperative. Jesus looks past the pretense and the programs and the facades of every church and he evaluates every church and says exactly where we are. What he did at the church of Sardis, he said, this church has a lot of form, but it doesn't have any force. It has a lot of activity. Oh, they got great PR, but they don't have any prayer. They've got a lot of things going on, but they're dead. Just nobody's told them yet that they're dead. It's like the rhyme of the ancient mariner where the line says, Corpses man the ship, dead men pull the oars, dead men hoist the sails, and dead men steer the vessel. The verse in the Good News Bible translates this way, I know you have a reputation of being alive even though you're dead. Now folks, let me tell you when a church is dead. A church is dead when it preaches a cheap gospel. When it preaches a watered-down version of the Scripture, a church is dead when it preaches cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, grace without discipleship, and Jesus Christ without the cross. A cheap grace, a cheap gospel, watered down from what God intended it to be. Now this church... They had a preacher, they had a staff, they had a program, they had a budget, they had everything going on. They had their 
plans all put together. They knew where they were going and what they were doing. They had it all. I'm reminded of the missionary in 1975 at Foreign Mission Week at Ridgecrest Baptist Assembly who stood up on one night and he said, I am convinced that if the Holy Spirit withdrew from the Southern Baptist Convention, it'd take us 10 years to figure out he was gone because we planned so much. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with structure, and there's nothing wrong with planning, and there's nothing wrong with programs. But if the Spirit is not the motivating force behind that, there is everything wrong with it. Everything wrong with it. This church had a condemnation. They were busy. They were active. They had a great printing press. I mean, they had it all. They could churn out all the literature and all the things, but they were dead, according to God's eyes. Now, I want to give you, if I could... Five reasons why churches die. If you want to know why churches live, you read church growth books and church growth journals and you find out why churches live and grow and what their characteristics are, what they do to reach people. You try to study those kind of things. The other side of that coin is you need to study why churches die. Eighty percent of Southern Baptist churches have plateaued. They're no longer growing. Even though we don't like to admit it, we have not grown in this church, in Sunday school, in four years. We have not met the level of baptisms that we were meeting in the early part of the last decade. We've stagnated. We're status quo. And you and I must be rattled to the point where we understand if we stay where we are right now, doing what we're doing, and we don't expand, and we don't stretch our rubber band without breaking it, and we don't take some risk, we are going to sit here, and like every other church in this area, we are going to die. We must understand that. God is not bound to bless us because of what we used to do or how many we baptized five years ago. He's interested in what we're doing today right now, who we're reaching today. Not many, how many we had at visitation last week. How many are we going to have this week? That's what God's interested in. There are some reasons why churches die. Number one, they worship the past. They worship the past. They have a status quo mentality. Now, we are to learn from the past. God help the church that thinks that they don't have anything to learn from the past. You know, there's some people, there's some uh, ministers and some uh, churches that think that the pastor doesn't have anything to teach them. They think God had a hard time before they came on the scene. We need to learn from the past. We don't need to live in the past. You see, there are a lot of First Baptist churches of nostalgia. I read an article on the plane coming back from San Antonio this week, and this guy has made a whole fortune collecting 50s and 60s lunch boxes. There's a way to give your life. Roy Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy lunch boxes. You know who's buying them? Baby boomers. Baby boomers, boy, we tune in those 50s stations. Well, all the background singers could do is go do wop, do wop. If you knew the alphabet, you could sing in the 50s. <laughs> you know, duh, 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 duh. You know, I mean, you could. All you had to do was know the alphabet. So it didn't take much. And we got to hear the 60s, and we got to hear the 70s, and we've we got to have all this nostalgia. And, and why do you think Nickelodeon's on your cable? They're giving you everything you grew up with. Donna Reed, God bless her heart. Leave it to Beaver. I mean, none of you had mothers that cooked with their prom dress on.
We go back and say, oh, that's it. That's it, the good old days. The good old days weren't so good. When I was born, we didn't have air conditioning. I like today. We have air conditioning today. My mom and dad tell me about the good old days. Son, you should have been around in the good old days. I said, Dad, was it good walking uphill both ways, six miles and six feet of snow to school? Is that what you're referring to? Or are you referring to when you had to go out and the coals had died down and you had to go out in freezing cold weather and you were the one that had to get the wood and stoke the fire in the morning so everybody could get up and when your feet hit the floor you went, oh, that's cold. Is that the good old days? When you walked everywhere, when you had to go outside to find the plumbing? You know what I've determined? You can never go back. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I went to my old hometown. Hadn't been back since I was in high school. Hadn't gone back, hadn't, and I went to my old hometown and said, you know, it's changed. People aren't driving 57 Chevys anymore. Things have changed. The old hamburger place has been torn down. Things are different. You can never go back and you can enjoy the past and you can learn from the past and you can learn from your mistakes and from your experiences but folks we can never go back to like it was and after all who wants to I mean I don't want to go back and have to take my first date again I don't want to go through acne again I mean do you do you want to go through the first time a girl that you said I love you and she said thanks You don't want to go through that again. Worshiping the past. Thinking about the past and just building on it. The second thing is having a priority on cosmetics over character. A priority on cosmetics over character. Jesus said, I have not found. That word is also translated, I have not discovered. The Greek word is eureka. It is going and expecting to uncover something great. And there's nothing there. Going and expecting to uncover something great, and there's nothing there. It is cosmetics over character. It is an attitude of we will look good at all cost. Thirdly, honoring man-made traditions over Christ's word. Honoring man-made traditions over Christ's word. You know how some churches define tradition? Anything we've done more than once. I mean, really. I remember when I went to Sagamore as associate pastor and student minister there. It was an interesting experience. Camp Sagamore has been going on for 50 years. There are some people there that have been sponsors at youth camp for over 40 years in a row. These people have emotional problems. Nobody goes to youth camp 40 years in a row <laughs> unless they're trying to get out of purgatory. That's the only way that I can figure out. But I can remember that camp used to run 450 and 500 students in the summer. And they did all these things, and they got all this hoopla and all this stuff going on. And when I came in, they'd had little less than 100 the year before I got there. And so I got there, and I met with the camp council. And they said, now, Brother Cat, this is what we do when we go to camp. We do this, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this. And as I said to one of my dear friends, who's one of my, still one of my dear friends in that church, I said, you know what? You don't need me. You called me to do somebody else's program. You didn't call me. You called me to carry on a tradition. You didn't call me. Folks, God never calls a man to do what another man did. 
God never replaces Paul with Paul. He replaces him with a Timothy who's different. God doesn't do things the same way all the time. And I tried to tell them and convince them, and we finally did, and the thing began to grow, that what they did in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even back in the 40s to reach young people was great, but that wouldn't reach young people today. It was different that the thing had to flex and to grow and to change. And that you cannot honor tradition over Christ's word. You see, it's one thing to guard the gospel. It's another thing to guard your methods. It's one thing to guard the gospel. It's another thing to guard your programs. And I'm convinced that a man ought to be free to do what God has called him to be, not what everybody expects him to be. You see, we can't honor tradition over the word. The tradition's the thing that got the Pharisees in trouble. They just couldn't understand why Jesus wanted to change everything. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs, you're dead. Tradition. And the saying of those who are stuck in tradition, now I'm not saying all tradition is bad. Don't you walk out of here and say, he said everything that's traditional is bad. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we can never, as a church, say, as it was in the beginning, so shall it ever be. Folks, our culture is changing. The gospel doesn't change, but our methods must change. Our programs have to change. We have to flex. And one of the reasons why Southern Baptist churches are dying today is because they're trying to do the same things the same way that their mamas and their grandmamas did it, and the young people and the children of this country are thumbing their noses at them and saying, forget it, I found a better show down the road. Because the church has not been progressive and aggressive in reaching out in new and dynamic ways and taking some risk and willing to fail in trying some of those things. Now the fourth reason is a rigid resistance to change. I kind of led into that. A rigid resistance to change. We cannot afford to be inflexible. Uh, the early crowd didn't catch this. It kind of went right over their heads. You remember the hippies? Does anybody remember hippies? Do y'all remember hippies? This way means yes, this way means no. Remember hippies? Long-haired hippie freaks. I remember my dad driving down the road, long-haired hippie freaks. Somebody will just run over them. <laughs> remember when hippies started having sit-ins? They'd sit down. All us folks say, I tell you what, if, that's, if I knew I wouldn't go to jail for it, I'd just plow a truck right through that group. And I'd just take them all out, protesting, sit-ins. You know what? I'm convinced that there's some people that have been having sit-ins in churches for the last 30 years. They came and they sat, and they thought that was a great commission. As long as you don't make me move from my pew at my place at my time, and doing it my way, I'll be happy and I'll be fine. You know, I just wish one Sunday, y'all would just surprise me, those of you on this side of the room would go over here. <laughs> and those of you on this side of the room would go over here. You know, where you sit is not spiritual. I hate to break your bubble. <laughs> Some folks sitting in the front, I sit in the front, where I can listen to the Word of God. And the ones in the back saying, I sit in the back so I don't have to. I tell you how we got our young people down front in one church. 
We put all the adults in the back and left the only seats in the church down front. They had to sit there. And then the adults started talking and acting up in church. Now, this is strange. <laughs> change, a resistance to change. The last reason churches die is they lose their heart for missions and evangelism. They lose their heart for missions and evangelism. I served a church one time, and I was standing outside the Sunday school department of a meeting adult department. In that department were three visitors. And the Sunday school director stood up and said, Folks, we're growing too fast. We got too many new members. We don't need any more folks in this church. Let me assure you, those three people never came back. We lose our heart for missions and for evangelism. I long for the day when we can have people on a consistent basis going and doing short-term missions, not only here but overseas. When we are committed to evangelism, not just a few but all of us, to sharing the gospel, to sharing our faith in Jesus Christ, not to be successful, just to be faithful. doesn't mean that every time you share the gospel, somebody's going to respond. It means that God's just called you to share what Christ has done in your life. But a church starts dying when it loses its grip on missions and evangelism. When we forget that the purpose of the church is to reach the lost, that the church exists for those who are not yet its members. This church doesn't exist for me. It doesn't exist for you. It exists for people outside of these walls who are not yet members of any church, who have not come to know Christ, and they need an asylum to come to from a lost, violent world. Now, he gives his command, and he gives it in five words. Let me just give them to you very quickly. He says, wake up in verse 2. These commands are all found in verses 2 and 3. He says, wake up, or watch. The word is watch. That's a command. Watch and wake up. Be on the alert. You see, you and I never drift toward anything worthwhile. We never drift toward godliness. We never drift toward discipleship. We never drift toward anything that's good. We always drift away. Watch. Second word is strengthen. Notice that little phrase, the things that remain. Now here's what Jesus is saying to him. He is not saying, abandon your programs, abandon your activity, abandon your calendar. He's saying, put life into it. Do it for the right reasons. Do it with the right motive. Put life into what you are doing. Strengthen it. The things that remain, don't stop them. But do it for the right reasons. The third word is remember. Verse 3, he says, Remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Received and heard and keep it. Remember. Remember why you were saved. You remember the joy of your relationship with the Lord. Then he goes to the fourth word, and that is found in verse 3 where he says, Keep it. The word is hold fast. Hold fast. Keep it. Stay with the stuff. Stay with the Word of God. Don't stray off course. And then he comes to the fifth word, and really this fifth word is the word that puts the other four into motion, and that is the word repent. What Jesus is saying to this church is, I'm going to come quickly. I'm going to come like a thief, and you're not going to know it. He says to the church, repent, or else everything you do is spiritually useless. Now folks, I can think of nothing worse than having a lot of activity and a lot of busyness and standing before God on judgment day and he'd say, everything you did was wood, hay, and stubble. It was all in the flesh. 
It was all busy, and oh, you stayed busy, and you served me, but you really didn't serve me. He said, repent, and then he gives a counsel. And there are three promises in verses 5 and 6. He promises eternal righteousness. Eternal righteousness. Notice the little phrase, clothed in white garments. It is a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a reference to purity and to victory and to glory. They were counted worthy. They would have eternal righteousness. They would feast with the Lord. But not only eternal righteousness, they would have an eternal residence. The phrase says their names would not be erased from the book of life. At the time of Christ, what they would do is when there was a king or a governor and someone died or moved, they would take and blot out their name. Jesus said, I'll never blot out your name. Your name is written in permanent ink in the book of life, and it will never be erased. It will never be blotted out. You have an eternal residence with me. But the last one is that there is an eternal recognition. Notice that he says, I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. There's an eternal recognition. I don't know how he's going to do it. But somehow when you and I get to glory, we followed and stayed with the stuff and done what God told us to do. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to put his arm around you and he's going to tell people who you are. He's going to walk up to the saints of old. He's going to walk up to Isaiah and Jeremiah and King David, a man after God's own heart. He's going to take you up to Moses and he's going to say, I want to introduce you to one that bears my name. And he's going to call your name to the saints of God. Jesus Christ is going to personally confess your name. He's going to speak your name in heaven. And then he's going to take you and call all the angels together. And he's going to say, I want you to know this is one of mine. And then he's going to take you to the very throne room of holy God. And he's going to say, Father, when I went to the cross, this one became one of mine. An eternal recognition an eternal righteousness, and an eternal residence. That's what God gives us when we're faithful. When I began the process of talking to this church and discerning what the Lord wanted to do, I'll never forget what one of the men in our denomination said. He said, you know, Sherwood is probably one of the five greatest churches in Georgia. He said, in fact, south of Atlanta, it is the greatest church in Georgia. There is no church that can compare to Sherwood Baptist Church in Georgia. And when he named the four others with this church, I had served one and I knew about the other one, so I knew that we were better than two of the five that he had named based on just the reputation of this church. So I knew we were in the top three. But folks, I'm going to tell you something. I could care less if this denomination ever recognizes us as one of the great churches of America. I could care less if this state or this association ever reckon, I don't care. I really care if when we are done with this life and we stand before the King of glory that he recognizes that we were one of the great churches. Because we can put on enough hype and enough fluff and enough programs and get enough bells and whistles and get enough things going on that everybody will ooh and awe ah at us, but folks, the only ooh and awe ah that matters and the only well done that matters is when you get still and quiet before God and God says you did it just like I told you to do it. Amen. That's all that matters. Don't worry about our reputation in this association.
Don't worry about our reputation in this state. Don't worry about our reputation in this denomination. You worry about our reputation in the place that it really matters, and that's in heaven. Let's have a name to be alive, and let's be alive with the power and the grace of God. Let's stand with heads bowed and eyes closed. The choir is going to sing our hymn of invitation. Our staff is going to be here at the front. Some of you are looking for a church home. I do not say this because I'm the pastor of this church. I say it from trying to be as, as objective in my observation as possible. This is a great church. It is one that you could find your family being ministered to. It is, you could find a ministry for you and to you as a single adult. You could find a ministry as a young person to you and for you. It's a great church. God's leading some of you to walk down these aisles this morning and affiliate with this church to go to work for the Lord Jesus and to be a part of it. Our staff will be here. Deacons are available to help you. People are available to counsel with you. You may not even know why you're coming, but you just can't stay where you are. If you're in the middle of an aisle, somebody will let you out. If you're visiting with somebody and you don't want to come down this aisle by yourself, you can turn to the person next to you and ask them to come with you, and they'll walk down the aisle with you. You may not even know them, and they'll walk down with you. They would love to bring you and allow you to be a part of this church. If you're here this morning without Christ, you do not have eternal righteousness. You don't have an eternal res residence, and there's no eternal recognition. There's no way Christ will confess you. That has to come when you repent and turn to Christ. I'm going to pray. We're going to remain with heads bowed and eyes closed. The choir's going to sing. You respond on the very first verse. We're not going to sing, but two verses. You come on the first verse. Heavenly Father.